You are listening to a Writers at Stanton podcast. Every month, Stanton Library hosts some of the world's most exciting writers and thinkers to discuss their latest books. Thank you for joining us. Uh, Ladies and gentlemen, on behalf of North Sydney Council and the Constant Reader Bookshop, welcome to the Library and the Writers at Stanton program. Before we begin the proceedings, I would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of these lands in which we meet and to pay our respects to the spirits of ancestors both past, present and emerging. My name is Margaret Nicholson and I'm the Program Support Librarian from the Customer Services team. Uh, Today I'm going to have the pleasure of introducing Ben Bravery, Dr Ben Bravery. Uh, Ben grew up in Queensland um, and in addition to his medical degree, has a Bachelor of Science with honours from the University of Queensland, majoring in zoology and animal behaviour. He also has a graduate diploma in science communication from the Australian National University. He was unfortunately diagnosed with colorectal cancer at the age of 28 and underwent 18 months of treatment, which included radiotherapy, chemotherapy and surgery. Afterwards, he studied medicine and became a doctor. He now volunteers, advocates, writes and speaks about colorectal cancer, living with cancer, cancer in young adults, medicine and medical education. He's written for the ABC, Huffington Post, Cosmos and China Daily. He's also appeared on ABC Radio, Sunrise, Nine News, Seven News and uh, China Radio. His experience as a patient interacting with the health system and his role as a doctor has inspired him to write this memoir, The Patient Doctor. Please give a warm welcome to Dr Ben Bravery. Oh, I can take this off. Sorry about the delay. As you can tell from the headlines most mornings, the health system is chaos at the moment. So um, my particular hospital is bed-blocked, um, and this morning I arrived to a frenzied, um, frenzied pressure to get as many patients out as possible, which isn't good care, we know that, but we have to make capacity. So they sprung a whole bunch of new plans on me, uh, and I've been busy doing those this morning, which is why I'm a little bit late now. So apologies, but thank you for waiting. Um, so as the introduction goes, my name's Dr Ben Bravery, you can call me Ben. Um, I have written a book called The Patient Doctor, which plots a little bit about me getting sick, then deciding to become a doctor. And that that order of things is rather important because there are quite a few books, um, if you go to this section of any library or bookstore, that have a lot of medical memoirs. When Breath Becomes Air is one that pops to mind. Beautiful book. Um, And... Often we find doctors who have been practicing for some time get sick and all of a sudden see medicine through a whole new lens, what it's like to be unwell, what it's like to wear a hospital gown and nothing much else, what it's like to have all your belongings taken off you, have the ID band put on, not really understand what's going on around you. But I went to med school knowing in my bones what it felt like to be sick what it felt like to be unwell, and I filtered everything through that. Um, Let's go, let's start though, um, in an odd place, let's start in Beijing. So I was um, living there, I'd been there for four years in China, it was after the Olympic Games, it was a very exciting place, China was booming. You can see what it's doing with that power now, but back then it was just building it, it was very exciting. It was throwing money at everything including science. 
And in my old life, before all of this, I was a zoologist who studied wildlife. And I was interested in large mammal conservation. So I took myself off to China, where wildlife are in constant conflict with people, yet the government has a strong agenda to save what they can. And I worked with the Chinese Academy of Sciences on a whole range of zoology programs. And I found myself mostly attracted, attracted to and attracting giant panda researchers. So I became a bit of an expert in giant pandas. I didn't know much about them before going there, apart from what most people say, which is that they're an evolutionary dead end and that they're not really worth saving. I've got a very different opinion now, of course. They're a beautiful animal. They're very complicated. And it was during this work with Chinese zoologists that I decided to set up my own business and help them promote their work abroad because China was opening up and science was a part of that. So I left the Academy of Science and set up a little business, became an entrepreneur. I was busy building this, throwing all of my energy into it at the same time as I started to get symptoms. Now, I put those away most of the time because I was busy building a business and I put it down to fatigue and maybe overdoing it, stretching myself. But eventually I couldn't put those symptoms away any longer. I had to face up to facts. And I know now as a doctor that the symptoms I had were textbook symptoms. You can read any medical textbook, go to bowel cancer and see the symptoms I had. So I would get constipated and then weirdly the next day I'd have diarrhea and then I'd be constipated again. I lost a lot of weight. I would cripple over in abdominal pain. I would get terrible night sweats, so much so that I'd have to change the sheets. And I got pale, and then I started bleeding from the backside into the toilet bowl. Now, it's not like these things happened every single time I went to the toilet, or they happened every single day. So I didn't connect the dots fully, or maybe a part of me didn't really want to connect the dots fully. As I said, I was 28. I was fit and healthy, despite these symptoms. I was busy building a business, and I'd just fallen in love. So my giant panda work took me into a radio station where I was to do an interview about giant pandas for Chinese Radio International. And a producer at that radio station was a lady named Sana, herself from Canada, and our eyes locked across the newsroom and she marched up to me and she knew of me and she knew I was coming and she said, how does one become a panda expert? And I waffled on about how one does become an expert in pandas but the whole time I was completely gobsmacked by this woman in front of me and she with me. She marched back over to her computer and I made an excuse to come keep the conversation going. So I was standing next to her desk and she's typing to a friend in London, all caps, oh my God, I've just fallen in love. <laughs> and her computer screen freezes. <laughs> and I'm standing there, and she's awkwardly trying to shield the computer <laughs> while trying to get up and push me out back into the corridor. So it was clear it was mutual. So I was head over heels with someone, and that, the last thing you want to do when you're in that phase, is talk about poo. <laughs> the last thing you want to do is talk about your bowels. It's almost as in the first part of a relationship, those things don't exist for each other. So I didn't tell her a whole lot until 
we were into our relationship. I didn't tell anyone a whole lot, actually. The first parts of my illness were very private, and I understand now why people sit on symptoms, so to speak. I understand why they keep them to themselves. Some of it's the intimacy of those symptoms, but some of it is that you don't really want to admit that maybe something really serious is happening. Eventually, I had to admit that, though. I was on a ski trip with my dad. He came to visit me in Beijing, and I convinced him to get off the skis and go snowboarding. Neither of us had done it. Um, he was about 55 at the time, very courageous. And so we got an instructor, and we went snowboarding, and I stacked it over and over and over again, and he took to it like he does take to these things. And that night, having tumbled down the ski slopes and twisted myself up, amongst trees and my snowboard, I had an enormous bleed. And I decided that I could no longer keep these things to myself. What I saw in the toilet bowl frightened me. And so I disclosed to him, the first person that really knew everything that was going on. And he didn't panic, which was lovely. Um, But he suggested I do something about it. So I had to call my mum and tell her And she did panic, (laughs) as she does. And she very quickly suggested that I needed a colonoscopy. Now, my mum has no health training, but she thinks she does. And she knows a lot. And her mentors are Oprah and Dr. Phil (laughs) and any naturopath or chiropractor that she walks up to on the street and recommends some supplement that she needs for some condition she doesn't have. So she took all this information and she decided I needed a scope and that was very clever of her. But even then, I thought she was being dramatic. I thought she was... I thought it was overkill. Again, I had no family history of any cancer. I was 28. I had other things on my mind. But I did have the colonoscopy. And it was life-changing and life-saving. So back in Melbourne, I had to get a visa to continue my work in China, and I just slotted in a colonoscopy. I'd done the laxatives and the fasting the day before. I expected to have the colonoscopy, be told I had hemorrhoids, which is most of the time what bleeding is, and get back on a plane to Beijing. But I never made it back to Beijing. The colonoscopy found a very large mass in the sigmoid colon, so right before the rectum, and it was big, And it was bleeding, which explained my bleeding. And it was large, which explained the night sweats and the pain and the diarrhoea and the constipation. At the time, though, you don't know these things about cancer. They have to take samples and send them off, and other doctors have to get involved. But he was fairly sure it was. Now, hearing the cancer word is always shocking for anybody. More so, given my age... And more so because we had a meeting before I went in for the colonoscopy and I'd said, I really worried this might be cancer. And what do you think he said? Of course this isn't cancer. You're too young and fit. I'm not expecting to find cancer. And he asked me about the family history again. And I said, no, there's no cancer anywhere in my young, fit, healthy family. So then I wake up from the anaesthetic and I'm told that this very likely is a bowel cancer. He was an excellent doctor. I had never met him before the colonoscopy. And he had my mum in the room, and we went through what the diagnosis may be and what needed to happen. 
And I remember this not from my own memory, but from what my mum tells me, because I blanked out. I went completely numb, as people often do when they hear this news. And so, very quickly, that consultation became one of almost panic, or as panicked as that doctor would allow himself to get, because he knew, and what I didn't know, was that when young people are diagnosed with bowel cancer, unfortunately, just like me, their symptoms tend to hang around for a little while and they get diagnosed very late in the disease. My first thought was, this thing's been there forever. I'm not worried. His first thought was, there will be other tumours. We just haven't found them. So he starts dialing other hospitals to give me a CT scan to go looking for those other tumours. And I've had enough of the consult at this point. So I step outside into the car park and I have to call Sana back in Beijing. She's the first person that has to know. And so I take myself out to a little part of the car park and I call her. And as the number's ringing, and I can hear it ringing, I'm dreading the conversation I'm about to have. One of the hardest parts actually about getting the illness is having to tell people. It's really awkward. And you know that, and there'll be people in this room nodding their heads, so I know you know this. You are going to disrupt that person's day, maybe their month, maybe their life, with what you're about to drop on them. And it weighed heavily on me. Plus, we were five months into our relationship. She was 22. She was a baby. I was 28. And I had no idea what this meant for us. So I lean against the car for a bit of support. My hands are shaking, a little bit like they are now. My mouth's dry, a lot like it is now. And I tell her that the doctor found something really big and nasty, that it's probably a cancer. And Sana's a journalist. She's into the who, what, when, where, why. She makes these conversations really easy because she cuts you off <laughs> and then starts asking what she needs to know in order to understand the newsworthiness of what she's hearing. So she cuts to the chase and establishes that she wants to come to Melbourne to be with me. And I try to reassure her, oh, don't worry about it. You don't need to come just yet. Let the tests take their time. Let's come up with a plan. But she insists. She's on her way to work. She records a television program in China that day. She jumps on a plane and she's with me by the next morning. So I had her the whole time, which was a beautiful thing. And if I jump ahead, I can let you know that we're still together all these years later. We're married and we have a little baby. And cancer accelerated our relationship. It didn't damage it, although at times it got close, but it pulled us together in a way that might have taken maybe 20 years had we plotted along together. There's a trust now, there's an intimacy. But there's also a fear that we know it might not last forever. That there was a chance when I was diagnosed at 50-50 odds that I might not make it. And we've come to peace with that. I'll have a sip. So I get diagnosed. The race is on to find more tumours. They don't find any more. And in a, weird, in a weird turn of events, this is what happens when something really bad like cancer happens. We went out to celebrate that. 
that there was only one tumour. It's the oddest thing in the world to celebrate. But I was genuinely happy that there was just the one. It meant big things for me. It meant I didn't have stage 4 disease. And we all know what stage 4 disease means. But I ended up having stage 3C just before stage 4. I was incredibly lucky. Incredibly lucky. Had mum not recommended I have that scope that day and I'd put it off, I'm convinced the tumour would have spread. What they ended up finding was that the tumour was in the sigmoid colon and had grown through the sigmoid colon and attached itself to a piece of rectum next door. Sorry for all the bowel talk. And it was also touching the bladder. So it was a complicated thing. It needed a lot of treatment. But that took a while to work out. The first surgeon I went and saw was very optimistic based on my history and age and having looked at the CT scan that he could go in keyhole, whip this thing out, maybe give me chemotherapy, but he wasn't convinced, and then send me back to China within six to eight weeks. And I thought that was a marvellous treatment plan. I was ready to sign, the, sign on the dotted line. Um, I, I was actually going to sign the consent form that day for the surgery, but mum, mum said, hang on, hang on, Benjamin, let's just wait a second. So we think about it, we're talking about it at home. She pops into the backyard to call one of my aunties and tell them about the cancer. And a neighbour hears my mum talking about the cancer. And once the phone call is finished, she pops her head over the fence and says, Joe, I think Ben should get a second opinion. I used to work at a cancer hospital and it's always good to have a second opinion. He should go talk to these people, they're the best. And mum came in and told me, and again... I didn't want to hear that. I was done. I had a plan. It was a little tumour. We'd go and nick it out. I'd be on my way. But I did it as a courtesy to the neighbour. I got the second opinion. Now, my interaction with that surgeon was radically different. The surgeon was not as optimistic. They certainly weren't as charming. Um, And when I told him that he was the second opinion, he got offended, got defensive... And he said to my mum and I, and my mum did not like this comment, um, that we were doctor shopping. And in, in a way I kind of was because I wanted an outcome which was to get my life back and I wanted the quickest way to that outcome. So in effect I was, but I deeply respected his opinion still. And he took the second opinion as a bit of an affront to his skill set. Mum and I left that appointment very cynical about that pathway. It didn't fill us with hope. We didn't have a good rapport with the surgeon and I was left wondering, well, did I need to like them in order for them to operate on me? Did I need them to feel like they were my friend in order to receive care? And I decided that I didn't. And I wanted the surgeon, but more importantly, I wanted the cancer hospital that that surgeon worked in I wanted all the other services that I knew I might need, like physiotherapy, radiation, chemotherapy, psychology, social work. And I made the hard decision to go with that surgeon, despite what my heart was telling me, despite the fact that I didn't feel like we connected and I wasn't sure if we were going to get along, which, of course, alienates the entire doctor-patient relationship, doesn't it? Because you have to feel comfortable and you have to trust them And you have to feel like your question's not silly in order to ask it. And I didn't feel any of those things with the second surgeon. But the second surgeon knew what they were doing. 
So they sent me off for an MRI and it discovered that this tumour was bigger and worse than the CT scan showed. Like I mentioned, it perforated one bowel and attached itself to the other. It was wrapped around the equipment that gets sperm from the testicles up through the penis, so there was a chance of infertility and impotence. There was a good chance I would lose my bladder. Had the first surgeon gone in, I probably would have lost a lot more anatomy, and I'd be standing before you today with two bags permanently attached to my abdomen, one collecting urine and one collecting feces. But the second surgeon sent me on a very different pathway that involved a lot of radiation therapy first to shrink the tumour, then a big open surgery. So the cut is from here to here, no keyhole. He needed wide open. He got a lot more surgeons involved, so there was a team of urologists in to check on my bladder and to make sure that the fertility equipment would be safe. And then I had four months of chemotherapy afterwards. So my four to six week treatment became a year. And at the end of that, cancer gave me blood clots in the lungs, pulmonary emboli. And I was rushed back to hospital and then went under anticoagulation therapy for a year. The technical side of my care was brilliant. Obviously, I'm here. I was rushed from modality to modality. I was a tier one patient, young, fit and healthy. They threw everything at me. But at lots of points in my care, I worried about the human side. So the first appointment with that surgeon was an indicator that I wasn't always going to love the people I was working with. I wasn't maybe even going to like them. And I grappled with that, particularly when I got really sick in hospital after my surgery. The tumour was out, all the bits of plumbing was stitched back up, and I had a bag here, giving the rest of it a rest. And about a week into my recovery, having only supposed to have been in hospital for five days, I start to get really sick. Every time I put a piece of food even near my mouth, my brain tells my stomach to start vomiting, although there's nothing in there. Spit comes out, tears are coming out of my eyes. I'm clutching my wound, right? I've got 47 staples running down the front of me, waiting for my intestine to burst out. I get really weak and tired. I stop taking laps around the ward. I get fevers. I lose 12 kilos of body weight. Every morning, the ward round, surgeon and a bunch of strangers, people I don't know, who know way more about me than I know about me, and they know way more about me than I know about them. I often didn't even know their name asking me every morning about farting and my bowels opening and my wound, and yes, there's no infection. And I become more and more confused about what's going on with me. And I become less and less brave to talk about it. And I really wanted someone to check in with me about how I was coping, or at least acknowledge that they had no idea what was going on. It turned out that the anatomy that they'd fixed up had sprung a leak, and so tiny amounts of poo had escaped into my abdominal cavity and I had an abdominal infection. While I was getting sicker and sicker, the hospital was just churning around me. I now felt like a piece of the machine. But I felt like I was a forgotten piece of the machine. It was fine while I was healing like they expected me to, but when I deviated from that and I started to go off script or off plan, I felt like I was left behind. And again, people were focused on the technical side, not the other side. So one ward round, I'm feeling like this. I've spent the last three nights next to an older gentleman with advanced disease. 
riddled with pain, who begs the doctors to euthanise him every single night. I was in a mixed room. Again, no one thought, what's this experience doing to the people around you? I was terrified that was my future. I'm weak, I've lost the weight. On one ward round, a nurse says to me, she looks up from the computer looking at numbers that I don't know, and says, you need to start eating or we're gonna put a tube down your throat. And I had heard tubes go down people's throat because I was on a busy cancer ward and I was in a shared room. And I, in my mind, everything had become small. My whole world had closed in in the cancer ward. And the tube down the throat was something I heard go in and out of people all day long and they gagged and it sounded like they were suffocating. I didn't know what they were for. I wasn't a doctor then and I was scared of them. And the nurse just, it just came out of her in a ward round. And that's when I realised that they had, all for, they had all forgotten that I was a person. They'd all stopped seeing me as Ben Bravery, recovering from bowel cancer surgery. I was just bed 14, who won't get better. I'd been depersonalised. After all of this, I take myself off to med school to become a doctor. Now, the decision to do that was complicated. I elaborated on, elaborate on it in the book. But there were two parts to it in a nutshell. One was to give back to the system that saved me and that I was grateful for. And another one was to see if I could sort these doctors out to help them remember that there's a person in that bed with a personality and with fears and that there's a lot that they're not telling them because they're not asking and they're not asking in the right way. And because two years after treatment, this is what still dominated my experience, it, I realised that these things really matter. They really matter. Because they're going to affect how I engage with the health system in the future and what the baggage I bring to other doctor-patient relationships. So I go and become a doctor. I say it like it's casual. I sat the test I got in. And I realise at med school that there's a lot of hostility with how they talk to each other. There's a lot of hostility in the education system there's a lot of depersonalisation. There were certain lecturers that would recall us Mr Blue Shirt or you in the black hat. You know, I was reminded of bed 13, bed 27. That depersonalisation, that dehumanisation started in med school and that really surprised me. But it didn't shock me because then I could see the connection between how doctors were being taught and how they were interacting with patients at the other end. I managed to hold on to my humanity, to my empathy, my communication, the things that make me a patient at the end of med school, and it was hard. And I pumped out into a busy hospital system, the one I've just described that made me late today. And I realised you could be as empathic and as patient-centred as you want to be, but without the time to deliver that kind of care, you're never going to. And I watched my colleagues, I'm watching my colleagues become more cynical, get bigger egos, become more jaded, become suicidal at times because the mental health of doctors and patients is quite... Uh, doctors and medical students is quite dire. And so I realised that a lot had to change. It wasn't going to be just me going into the system, sorting it out. Big things have to happen. Now, I don't have all the answers for what those big things are, but what I'm able to do as a patient that became a doctor and still see myself as a patient treating other patients is start this conversation around how doctors see patients and how patients see doctors and how doctors talk to each other and patients. If I have to put it down to one thing, it's that the heart has been lost from this process. The heart has been taken out of healthcare. It's been replaced with systems and bureaucracy 
and numbers and outcomes that don't necessarily matter to patients. And often the excuse is money and time, but they're not the main excuses. What I discovered going through the system was that it's a lot to do with our training and how doctors are empowered to provide care, how they're rewarded to provide care. Doctors still sit around and they love talking to each other more than anybody else and they value the smartest person in the room, the biggest brain, the most publications, which patients will value, of course, because that's life-saving care, but there's so much more to that dynamic that we could be rewarding doctors for above and beyond those what I think are quite simple things. That's the bare bones part of healthcare. So my mission is large, but it's going to involve everybody because we're all patients at the end of the day and we can all demand better from the healthcare system. I'm happy to take questions. Thank you. Thank you, Ben. That was very interesting and moving. Uh, does anyone have a question? No? You can uh, ask about anything. I'm an open book, um, particularly around cancer. Otherwise, I've got questions. <laughs> Thank you. Hi, Ben. Hi, Susan. <laughs> <laughs> um, I know Ben for many years, actually. We were friends together in Beijing, um, and, it's, and I live in North Sydney, so yeah. it was lovely to see you here today. Yeah. Um, just interested around how you think the Australian system compares to others. So if you think about, like, mm. foreign nurses or doctors coming in, is there something different in the training that happens in other places that might be better? It's an, it's an awesome question. So I don't have any experience of being a patient or working in other health systems. And I think... Um, you know, our foreign-trained doctors get a really bad rap, but um, they often shouldn't. The, the problems that I found in med school when I started researching it were ubiquitous to all med schools. So medical schools have known, it's like this big secret, that the more years of medical education you have, the less sympathetic, the less empathic, the more cynical you become. And whether that's a medical school in Saudi Arabia, China, New Zealand or London the pattern is the same. So I'd say that there's something fundamental to the way doctors teach other doctors that is not setting them up for the kind of healthcare that I've talked about today. Um, and then I think once, you know, there's a lot of protectionism around health systems and how we let doctors migrate. There's a moratorium in Australia, for example, that sends foreign qualified doctors outside metro areas for five to ten years. Um, and I think... Even in those healthcare systems, those doctors, like the domestically trained doctors, still aren't rewarded for the kinds of things that, even if they were taught to do, they can't do. So consultation times are capped. Uh, there's no metric that's measuring you know, how satisfied that patient was with the doctor-patient relationship or how validated they felt. It's more about whether they got a fever and how many days they spent in hospital. So I'd say... The things I talk about are particular to Australia, but the themes are probably universal. Uh, isn't there some new test that students have to pass before they become doctors to study? Like, you know, the person to doctor interview? There is an interview. Um, I actually write about it in the book because it's weird. So it's called a mixed mini interview and it's speed dating. Basically what you do is you rock up and you've got maybe between seven and ten stations. You stand at a door that's closed and you don't know what's on the other side of it. 
and this thing is controlled by an annoying high-pitched alarm that goes off every five minutes. And so when, it, when the alarm triggers, you're to walk into this room and you're not allowed to interact with the examiner on the other side of the table. You're not allowed to be a person. You get asked a question and you strictly answer it and you just talk at them until the bell goes. You, there's not supposed to be any to and fro. You're not supposed to exchange glances. There's no non-verbal and verbal prompting. Then you spit out your answer. You give them a barcode, which is, um, you know, anonymizes you. And then you move to the next door and wait for the bell to go off again. It's an extremely foreign form of interviewing a person. I expected when I was studying to go into med school that I would sit in front of a panel and I'd be asked lovely things about what, what my experience involved and what I thought about the patient perspective and what, is, what does it mean to provide care. Um, but instead I was asked quite esoteric things that can be systematised and then put against tick box. And the med schools have to do this because thousands and thousands of people apply to medical school, but there are limited spots. So I get it. I get why they've had to make it so efficient. But again, I don't think they're selecting the right characteristics. Alarmingly, some medical schools have even got rid of that interview. So all that's left is the entrance exam, this weird paper that takes eight hours to complete that's physics, chemistry, poetry and philosophy with some humanities. That's the metric that determines whether someone gets into med school. My med school still used the interview and the reason I applied to them is they still required a portfolio. So you still had to prove that you were a whole person and that you had done other things in life. But that's not the trend. And I fear now as we're trying to recruit this ridiculous amount of doctors for the healthcare system... Every time I look at the news article, the number gets bigger. It's maybe 10,000 doctors are needed. I, my fear is it will just become even more cookie-cutter. It will become even more factory. Because some doctors have no interpersonal skills at all. Well, that, so, yeah, so you can say that. <laughs> I, can't, I can't say that about my colleagues. Um, that, that is a common complaint, right? So often you'll hear, oh, they're like a robot. Or it was like talking to a computer or a brick wall. And that does happen. A lot of them do lack interpersonal skills, and this is important for two reasons. One, they're not selected for those in the first place, which would help. And two, they're rarely taught. Rarely taught. You might get one or two hours on communication or breaking bad news in a four-year degree. And then if it's taught, it's not assessed. And med students only really care about what's on the exam. So we really aren't setting them up well. We're not setting patients up well. Uh, you do have a question? Oh, good. Hi. Thanks very much for your talk. Thank you. Um, I've got quite a few medical people, yep. family situations, awesome. etc. And um, I'm also, through the experience with doctors, I wonder this depersonalisation process that you talk about... Mm how much that is a defensive mechanism yep. because of the fear of the doctor if you tap those other aspects mm. of the person and what they're experiencing, which is an emotional roller coaster, Worst day of their life. That the doctor won't cope with that. Yep. Or even if they, it's not necessarily their own psychological ability to cope with it, that it will drown them mm -hmm. their time, mm. their energy, and they won't be able to get on with mm -hmm. the other aspects of care. Yep. What do you think? That's such a good question, and it's something I've had to think about because one piece of feedback I got recently to the book is 
um, that I'm expecting too much from doctors, that they're there to diagnose and prescribe and then get out. I don't agree with that model of medicine, and I think most general practitioners in particular would be furious that that's what the doctor-patient relationship is reduced to. What I like to do when I was thinking about this is if we substitute the word doctor for nurse, could you ever imagine saying to a nurse or nurses saying to each other, "Don't don't get too connected, don't feel that pain, don't listen to that story, or a psychologist or a social worker? The caring professions do this. They have a way of straddling the line between empathy and sympathy, right? They know how to protect their compassion. And compassion fatigue and compassion burnout are real problems when you're not taught how to take on those feelings. So what I would argue is that we should actually be emotionally equipping our healers, our doctors, to have those conversations and take on those feelings without getting burnt out. And it comes to emotional maturity. So like the awesome question we had about selecting med students and then teaching them, we can teach empathy. We can teach how to protect compassion and we can teach boundaries. All the other professions do it, but for some reason doctors have resisted it. Do you think that, is that a valid reply? Yeah. And I have one more question. Um, the bit of the book that I did read was about teaching about treating cancer in your course mm. and how there wasn't that much information. So that's a bit scary. I was so the, shocked. What's happening now? Is it the same? Up? The same. So I went to med school as a cancer patient and I expected to be inundated with cancer, right? Part of it was like, I'm going to go and learn about the illness that almost killed me. And it was largely absent. So med school is still very much focused on the heart, heart disease. It's still a hangover from the 1950s, 60s. And as the curriculum has bloated out... We've just added more things to it, but the core things have held their position. So heart disease accounts for about 10% of deaths. Cancers, across the cancers, is 30% of deaths. Just based on the numbers, you think you should dial up the cancer. One in two people will get it by the age of 85, right? We're not talking about some esoteric disease. I went there and realised it only came up once in first year and once in second year. And I, I, like I did, I went back to the literature and looked at what the patterns were, and I was shocked. There were studies from the 90s showing that med students don't understand cancer and that junior doctors graduate with very little understanding of oncology. And that that research was 30 years old. So I went and revised it. I joined up with the College of Radiation Oncologists and I sampled about 400 med students in Australia and New Zealand that were just about to graduate. And I asked them the exact same questions that was asked in the 1990 study because I was dead curious to find out what had happened. And the confidence went down. The exposure to cancer went down. People felt less confidence doing pap smears, less confidence identifying melanomas. They had less contact with people who were dying from cancer. And again, it's this factory, right? As med schools have dialed up the number of students, they've had to dilute the experience that each of them gets. As the curriculum has become bloated, each of the subjects has had to fight for space. And I was shocked to learn that cancer is losing that battle. It's extremely scary considering how many people have cancer. And there is one more question. Oh, two more questions. Quick quick questions. (laughs) Uh, Just on that, perhaps um, the cancer education comes in postgraduate rather than undergraduate. Good point. Um, In in oncology. 
in oncology. So if you go into oncology, sure. you will get the cancer education. Yeah, yeah, and I think maybe that is that um, continuing education side. Yes. Undergraduates may not get it, but it doesn't mean oncologists don't get it. Oncolo I'm not, not, not saying oncologists don't get it. They're the experts. Yep, they saved my life. But a lot of other doctors will encounter cancer first before someone ends up at an oncologist. I'll tell you why it's a little bit scary. I asked people who are about to graduate whether radiation, so I got 50 greys to my pelvis, if radiation made you radioactive, and 70% said yes. That's an enormous misunderstanding of one of the core treatments of cancer. And if that doesn't get corrected along the way, if they don't go into oncology or surgical oncology or radiation oncology, they may potentially just have one conversation with a patient one day using the knowledge that they got from med school and contaminate that person's experience. And it may delay treatment. And, and final question, thank you. Um, have there been any studies on gender as far as doctors are concerned? I imagine probably that uh, female doctors <laughs> are gentler, more empathetic and more understanding compared to bigger, hairier type people. <laughs> are you talking about me? <laughs> is that in my mind or is, well, it, I think, is it a tray perhaps? I think that's an excellent observation because as a society we expect those qualities in females and it's not a coincidence that the, predominantly the caring professions are populated by females teachers, early childcare workers, social workers, psychologists, nurses. That's not a coincidence. Um, whether that's an outlet for that care, I, I don't know. There'd be other people that know more about me. Doctors currently are 50% male, 50% female, but they're not 50% male and female in the leadership positions. There's still a throwback to the, the old patriarchy there. Um, I, in my experience as a medical student observing doctors, I found the genders to be equally strained in terms of how they could contribute to the patient-doctor relationship. But the, and I saw standout examples in both genders. So I can't comment whether specifically there's a gender trait, but it would say something about us as a society that we think that female doctors would be better at it, right? Yeah. yeah. Exactly, most, yeah. <laughs> uh, thank you so much, Ben. Thank you, that's brilliant. Everyone, let's join. Thank you. Thank you, thank you very much. We hope you have enjoyed spending your time with us. Catch up with more of our audio recordings and relive the discussion, insights and laughter of Writers at Stanton. To find out more about our other events and programs, please visit www.northsydney.nsw.gov.au forward slash library. Thank you for listening. Thank you.